you're seeking biblical wisdom and understanding in these difficult and trying times, and you recognize the power of God's Word to delve deep into the issues of the heart, then welcome to Biblical Counseling Today with Dr. John Kwasney, husband, father, counselor, author, and teacher. Join us for Christ-centered, gospel-driven truth concerning our individual, marital, and parenting struggles. This is Biblical Counseling Today. I can't remember when I was first introduced to the concept of a play date, but it made me laugh out loud then and giggle about it even today. What's most funny about the play date to me is how it is defined in the dictionary. A play date is a scheduled appointment for children to get together and play. Play dates are typically arranged between parents of babies, toddlers, and children up to age four and are then kid requested for children ages five to 11, but still coordinated via the parents. A play date is at least two children, but can include three or more children. Now, I know we moderns are very busy people, so it makes sense that we make appointments for our children to get together with their friends. As you can tell from the definition, even our babies need these scheduled times to get with other very important babies. Now, seriously, I have no real objection to the play date. It is just a reflection of the often frantic times we live in today. If we don't make appointments, it might just not get done. But this phenomenon also demonstrates the changes in our neighborhoods through the decades. The first major change was when millions of people moved out of the cities to the suburbs. This allowed people to have a bit more land, a bigger house, and the perceived safety of picket fences and knowing everyone who lived on my street. Then, somewhat later, women started leaving the homes in droves, entering the workplace. As the decades passed, fewer and fewer women became stay-at-home moms. That meant neighborhoods became more like ghost towns during the days, especially throughout the school year. With people spending less time at home, we now don't know our neighbors like we used to. Going next door to borrow a cup of sugar or leaning over the picket fence and having a conversation is a thing of our storied past in many parts of our country. You might have more community with church friends that live in a different neighborhood or people on your child's sports teams or other organizations you belong to. Now, I'm not saying that all these changes are a totally bad thing or that we need to return to the 1950s if that were possible. Just observing how things have changed and the corresponding alterations in our children's relationships with other children. So think about some of these questions. How do your children make friendships today if their best friends probably aren't the kids next door and considering the impact of social media? Or how do they learn to relate in a world that is becoming more socially isolated and virtual than it was in the past? Or do we focus too much on keeping our children simply away from bad kids in order to protect them? And what about teaching them to love their enemies or do we just help them to protect themselves from bullies? And then where do siblings play into all of this? Are they supposed to be your child's best friends? So as you see, we have a few things to talk about in this final episode of season three on parenting issues. Let's dig down deep and consider how to train our children for and in relationships. 
Unless your child is an only child, the most regular routine peer relationships during childhood are their siblings. Whether your children are close in age or more far apart, they share much in common simply because they have been raised by the same parents. So let's begin with this primary childhood relationship and talk about how to relate to siblings. Here's the first question. Should your goal be that your children become best friends? Well, that sort of depends on what we mean by friendship. Do we want them to be friends rather than enemies? Of course. Do we want them to act in friendly ways towards each other as they are growing up? Definitely. It is truly wonderful as a parent to see my adult children still remaining good friends, even though some are married and even living in different cities. And I know how painful it is for parents when their children will not even attend a family gathering together because of their enemy status and their animosity towards one another. So in one sense, it is a worthy goal to set for our children to be the best of friends, now and hopefully in their future. But in another real sense, this goal can possibly negate the importance of other important best friends that God may bring into your child's life. For example, we don't read about David having a close friendship with any of his many brothers, do we? As the youngest shepherd boy, he seems to have been dismissed as a child, especially when he wanted to fight Goliath. Instead, we see that God knit his soul together with Jonathan, the son of Saul. They became the best of friends, even closer than brothers. So just try to think about any examples of brothers or sisters who became real close friends as far as the Bible reveals to us. Cain and Abel? Nope. Moses and Aaron? Not really. Joseph and his brothers? Maybe after they repented and he forgave them for trying to kill him. Mary and Martha? We don't know. All we read of is the rivalry. Again, it is fine to encourage your children to be close friends, but the reality is that they will probably become much closer to other people that the Lord brings into their lives. This may happen during childhood, but maybe not until high school or college and beyond. Not a whole lot of people keep their friends from childhood anymore. We are just too mobile of a society. So don't demand that your children be best of friends when other friendships may be just as important in their lives. In actuality, you want to train them to see brothers and sisters as better than friends. For example, they should protect their siblings, even above their friends. And they should work towards regular reconciliation with their siblings because they are family. And even if they have radically different personalities or have a significant age difference, they should learn to love and care for one another as brothers and sisters. Here's the second thing to talk about. Building up rather than breaking down sibling relationships. Even though our children will probably have friendships outside of just their siblings, We need, as parents, to take great care to promote strong sibling relationships. Because of their sin and maybe their differences in interests, personality, and age, it'll be tempting for your children to give little regard to one another. They may even be locked into a sibling rivalry, which we'll talk about in a bit. So here are some do's and don'ts that will give us some practical help here. First, teach your children to share with one another. Now, that sounds pretty obvious, doesn't it? 
Sharing is one of the first lessons of childhood. But it's easy to give our children too many individual personal belongings and even give them right to ownership. After all, isn't it easier in family life just to keep everything separate? Now, of course, some things have to be separated, especially between boys and girls. The point is that the more they are required to share, the more opportunities they will have to become closer to one another, even if they are also fighting more often. Second practical help, consider putting all brothers together in one bedroom and all sisters together in one bedroom. That's all our children experienced growing up, a a girl's dorm and a boy's dorm. At one point, there was five in one room and three in the other. Now, I'm not suggesting that this will guarantee close relationships. Some of my children would have loved to have their own bedroom. Yet it did allow them to learn how to share space and how to solve conflicts and even get along a little bit better. In our modern age of materialism, we tend to build homes so every child can have their own space, their own bedroom. Even if you have multiple rooms available, consider making one a shared playroom or another a guest bedroom so that your children can learn to share space together. Here's a third idea. Promote shared activities rather than solely independent activities. Have your children play games together, watch TV shows and movies together, do projects together, serve together at church and other places. Sometimes parents work overtime to distinguish their children from one another by making sure they each have their own activities. While some of that is fine, we should work just as hard to get siblings playing and working with each other. Finally, as I've just alluded to, get them doing chores together. Even my own children would rather clean the kitchen alone or do other household jobs alone. It's just so much easier than working together. But again, this promotes separateness. Put on the headphones or put in the earbuds and shut out the world for a few moments. Instead, get creative and have your children work as a team. Even when they cook, have one master chef and one sous chef to work together. The bottom line is to take great care to build their relationships rather than allow them to be broken down. This includes one last point, which I'll address more in a moment. Don't allow conflict to separate them either. Make sure they learn the biblical process of reconciliation with one another. So that leads us to the final issue regarding sibling relationships. What about sibling rivalry? Now, some would say that it's perfectly normal for siblings to be rivals, competitors, and even enemies at times. If by normal we mean normal because we are sinners, then yes. But normal doesn't mean it is good or acceptable. As parents, we must not be promoting sibling rivalry, but combating it. So how do we inadvertently promote it? By repeatedly comparing one child to another? Why can't you be more like your brother? Or by having personal favorites? Just think about Jacob and Esau. Or by having higher standards or expectations for one child more than another. And believe it or not, by thinking you have to treat each of your children the exact same or make sure they're all equal, that will only encourage your children to compete with one another for something more and something better. Now we have to realize that our sinful natures are competitive. We want to be first. 
We want to be the best. We want to defeat all those who we think we should defeat. We are filled with sinful pride. So again, your children will be tempted to rivalry. Take great care to not enable it. And then discipline it when it's apparent. Don't allow your children to speak in harsh tones or to be disrespectful towards one another. The sibling relationship is where they must learn to speak kindly and gently and compassionately. When your children are at odds, don't just send them to separate bedrooms. Force them to work things out, to talk, to reconcile. Of course, you may need to be their referee. Your children should be fighting together against the bigger enemies in their lives. Satan, their own sin, the world of evil people who are out to destroy them. It doesn't make any sense that children raised in a Christian home end up only being rivals. They need to move from immaturity to maturity in their relationships with God and one another. Again, work towards a right relationship between siblings rather than accepting sibling rivalry as the norm in your home. They might not become best friends, but they need to learn to love one another as brothers and sisters. Hopefully, they'll become brothers and sisters in Christ as well. Now, let's go beyond the family unit out to the greater world of friendship. Here are just a few things to consider in your parenting when it comes to relationships with friends. First, be a promoter of godly friendships. It's essential to teach our children to have friendships based on a shared love of Christ, not just shared activities or shared proximity. Now, our three-year-olds aren't playing with each other because they're both Christians, necessarily. They may be playing together because their parents are Christians. So as your child begins his or her life, there will be possibilities of childhood friends that emerge from school or the neighborhood that are totally based on shared personalities or shared interests or something else. And there's nothing wrong with that. But as they get older... Seven, eight, nine, it's vital that you instruct them on the need to have even closer bonds with those who profess Jesus as their Savior and Lord. Your child will desperately need the encouragement in their faith from a close friend or two, not just discouragement and temptation from non-Christian friends. Your child will need the camaraderie that comes from the gospel, not just because they're on the same sports team or sit next to each other in school. So pray that your child will find a godly friend, not just any friend. Encourage the pursuit of friendships within your church or other Christian activity groups. No, you can't necessarily force your child to make a friendship with the child you think he or she needs to be best friends with. But you can encourage it and pray for it. And if I may be so bold, it is also sometimes better for your child to not have a close friend if there are no good Christian friends available. I'm not saying he or she has to be alone and without relationships. A good godly friend just may be hard to find. Teach your child about the covenant of friendship that comes from the covenant of grace in Jesus Christ, like that between David and Jonathan, for example. Teach them that it's not just about having a buddy or being liked or being popular. Real friendship is built on shared commitments, goals, and desires. 
If you need to schedule play dates or parties, go right ahead. Find times for your child to pursue godly friendships. Work to get them outside of their own little worlds and actually want to be a friend, not just wait for a friend to emerge. It is part of their growth and character that they would become a good friend to others who need a friend as well. Here's a second issue. What about protection from bad friends? 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. The book of Proverbs also has much to say about the bad influence of peers that can lead your child astray. So we do have a charge from the Lord to protect our children from friends who will only corrupt, deceive, and ultimately attempt to destroy them spiritually, emotionally, mentally, etc. And in today's time, it is just naive to let your children play in a stranger's home or hang out with children who have great freedom to get involved in all the wrong things. Yet at the same time, part of your child's growth should be learning to be a witness to non-believers and even those bad kids that live down the street. So how do we properly manage that? First, teach your child the difference between friends and people who need Jesus. Their true friends should be other covenant children, other Christians, others who desire to follow Jesus. But the, quote, bad kids are simply kids that need the Lord. In one sense, they cannot even become real friends with them until they join you and turn to Christ. Second, encourage your child to pray for specific children who need to know Jesus. Third, have some supervised outreach if it's wise. Let them play together in a public area and challenge your child to be a witness in word and behavior. Of course, much of this process has to do with whether or not you as a parent have a relationship with these children's parents. Are you actively evangelizing their parents or do you not even know them? As a parent, your first priority is to protect your child from corrupting influences and to train them then how to handle those biblically. Yet, we also have a duty to teach our children to give a defense of their faith and learn to become a godly influence on others. While your children may be more equipped to do that in their teen years and college years, the groundwork should be laid early on. So don't teach your child to fear bad kids or not even recognize their own sin as well. They may be the bad kids on the block that also need to be saved. This is, again, why you need to promote godly friendships first. Here's a third issue. Be careful of the temptation to form cliques. Do we even use the word cliques anymore? We certainly did use that word a lot in the 1970s. My mother talked to us incessantly about not forming cliques. So what is a clique? Well, a clique is a close group that has no desire to let any outsider in. In the past, it seemed to be a subject of many a movie in my own childhood. Gangs of children keeping other kids on the periphery and out of the club. This is the sinful side of forming friendships, where we have a good friend or two or three, and then we close out the rest of the world. We see cliques form abundantly during the middle school and high school years. But even younger kids can form cliques at church, in the neighborhood, or at school. 
Typically, these closed groups are not based on Christians versus non-Christians. Instead, it is much shallower. Boys against girls, popular kids versus nerds, etc. We must train our children not to only avoid forming cliques, but to embrace the joys of being inclusive and accessible, of welcoming outsiders to inside the group. No, I'm not suggesting that our children can or must become friends with everybody, whoever those everybodies are. But we do want our children to learn how to love people who may seem unlovable, to include those who others are rejecting. You may know from experience how some of your closest friends weren't necessarily the ones that you thought they would be. Our hearts need to be opened by the Lord to make friendships that really matter to us and to others. This also means we teach our children not to be possessive and controlling as a friend, to not just invite the same few to all of their activities, to not just speak right away to their closest friends and shun all others. It is understandable that we get very comfortable with our closest friends. That's what friendship is. It's a different level of intimacy than we have with other people. But our children need to know how to keep good friends and also be friendly and kind and welcoming to all sorts of different kids as well. Don't let them be only totally absorbed with a friend to the neglect of human kindness and compassion towards other people. Remember, we are teaching them to have the love of Christ in their hearts for others, not mere human affection for a few. They will show forth the love of Jesus as they resist the clique, not just want to speak to the few and to reach out to the friendless as well. Finally, let's talk a bit about relating to enemies. Your sweet child doesn't have any enemies yet, right? At some point, he or she will have some sort of enemy, and you will naturally want to protect and defend your child from that enemy. So let's begin with this first question. What type of enemy is it? If your child has an enemy because he is being persecuted for his faith, then that is exactly what Jesus said would happen to all followers of Christ. Or your child may be experiencing some level of bullying because he appears weak or is an outsider or isn't cool or popular. Or your child may actually have an enemy because he has wronged another child and that child refuses to forgive or is still offended. So do you see why it's important to distinguish the category of your child's enemy? What do we do then if the enemy is a non-Christian who is persecuting your child for being a Christian? Well, we'll save that one for our next point. Let's go to the more common one. Your child being mistreated or bullied for any reason other than for being a Christian. Here are some biblical guidelines in that case. First, as parents, we can pray with our child for the bully. While this often appears to be some sort of nonviolent passivity, it is actually the most aggressive thing we can do. We're taking our request for justice and mercy to the God of the universe. We are teaching our children to petition the only one who can ultimately protect them and save them. Second, we can diagnose what may be going on under the surface. Maybe this is just a troubled kid who bullies everyone. 
Maybe your child acts a certain way that provokes this child. Maybe it's just a social dynamic where kids think it's funny to gang up on other kids. Help your child start to understand these different variables. Third, teach your child how to best respond in love and wisdom. When does he speak up and when does he walk away? How does he show love to someone who is abusing him? Talk through scenarios and then check in after an event. Fourth, determine when you need to speak to parents. This is always a dicey thing, isn't it? Many parents, even Christian parents, don't respond well when their child is accused of bad behavior. If you have a good relationship with the parents, it is somewhat easier, but it's never easy. At the same time, don't hesitate to intervene, even when your child may say that it will make things worse. Again, use wisdom and discernment here, but there are times to step in and protect. And you may even have to end up making sure that your child is not around that bully for a while, or any more at all if that's possible. Which leads us to the second question. What does it mean for our children to love their enemies? Well, Luke 6 gives us some idea. Luke 6, starting in verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. Well, that is certainly a tall order. And we have to believe that it doesn't apply to the enemy who wants to kill your child or molest or abuse your child. First and foremost, Jesus is talking about those non-believers who are persecuting us as Christians. We are to love them even when they hate us. But as far as applying this truth to our children, we need to stick to the principle of what it means to bless others who curse us and pray for those who hurt us. These are the core activities that children can learn early on. The rest of them will come into play as they get older. In other words, start by helping your children to have the heart of Jesus for enemies. As the next verses say, our natural inclination is to only love those who love us and hate those who hate us. Our children need to learn that Jesus calls us to something much higher. Again, just to be clear, we're not teaching our children to be doormats and simply take abuse. We want them to be aggressive and even sacrificial in loving the people who are hardest to love. Which leads us to the next question. When do we teach our children to defend themselves? The common wisdom when dealing with bullies is to just stand up to them and fight back, and then they will back down. Hopefully you know that that's not always the case. There's certainly a level of boldness and courage that we want to instill in our children to stand for truth and to stand against abuse. But this is not the same thing as simple self-defense. I would rather my child learn to defend others than only self-defend. But again, there may be times where you teach your child to protect self. This should not be expressed as fighting back or hurting him so he doesn't hurt you again. We still always begin with the injunction to love our enemies. 
Only based on that love and compassion can there be a time for self-defense. Not for the purpose of revenge or simple payback, but to prevent further harm. So hold intention how to teach love and kindness, plus also teaching boldness and courage. Without love, our children will just strike back when hurt instead of seeking reconciliation and peace first. This will take a lot of prayer and you'll see lots of tears as well. The harder place will be when your child is excluded or hurtful words are said. How do you self-defend against those? Your child will have to deal with the pain, learn to forgive, and learn to love his enemy. Finally, what if your child has created an enemy by his own wrong actions? You may be tempted to see your child as always the innocent victim when it comes to his or her enemies. But what if that's not the case? If you discover your child has sinned against another, you already know the steps he must take, right? He needs to learn to confess his sins to the one he has sinned against, ask for forgiveness, and even seek to give restitution where necessary. Now, it's quite possible that the enemy may not forgive your child or will continue to think poorly about your child and influence others to do the same. Even if your child has brought this enemy behavior upon himself and has been unsuccessful at remedying it, this is a hard place to be. You will need to encourage your child to suffer the consequences, even though he has been forgiven by God, if he has asked for forgiveness. Of course, this should come from a heart of compassion as a parent, not a heart of condemnation. Then teach your child to live a life of integrity, which will lead to a change in reputation over time and maybe even soften up his enemy in the future. Now, relationships are hard enough for adults, so we have lots to do in parenting our children to build sibling relationships and to rightly grow friendships and handle their enemies. Always keep in mind that the Lord has created your children like us to love God with all their hearts and to love their neighbors as themselves. Thank you for listening to Biblical Counseling Today with Dr. John Kwasney. This weekly podcast is supported by Biblical Counseling and Training Ministries, which you can learn more about at bctministries.com. If you have found yourself encouraged or challenged today, please share this podcast with your church, family, and friends. Rate us on iTunes and your social media outlets. It really helps. Until next time, may you enjoy the riches of God's compassionate grace and mercy in your life.